Welcome to Grace, everybody, this weekend. It's good to see you guys, and uh, welcome everybody watching online. Thanks for being with us uh, all over the place. We uh, are going to close out a series this weekend called Reversal, and uh, in this series, we've kind of been taking uh, kind of an in-depth, a fresh look at the Easter story. Uh, we started with what we call the triumphal entry, when Jesus walked in or rode into Jerusalem for the first time, the first day of the last week of His life. And uh, the Bible says that when he did that, the whole city stirred, and they all asked the question, who is this? Who is this? And so we asked that question and kind of got some different perspectives from the people that were in the crowd looking at him, asking those things, and then kind of dug at that ourselves. Then we, we looked at Jesus' suffering and his death throughout our communion services <clears throat> and just really looked and where the Bible says he showed us the full extent of his love. Uh, the extent he was willing to go to. And the Bible says, Jesus says in the Bible that it was by his own authority he laid his life down, and by his own authority he took it up again. Then we looked at Easter itself, right, the resurrection, and we said, who, who, who raised again from the dead? Was it just the idea of Jesus, the philosophy of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, or was it, we call it the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, that he physically rose again from the dead by exercising his own authority. Uh, then last weekend, we looked and said, uh, we looked at Peter and Jesus kind of reconciling their relationship after Peter denied him three times. And at the end of that conversation, Jesus said, come follow me, come follow me. And we said, well, what's it mean? What's that mean to be a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ and uh, to, to be one of his disciples? And then this weekend, I want to wrap up the conversation. So if you started with us in January, we kind of set out a little bit of a goal in January. And I told you in January, if you'll hang with us through the semester here, we will walk you all the way through the Bible, the big, big picture of the Bible. And so we did that. We started the, the second week of January and literally started on page one and talked about who we are and why we are and what God did. Then we looked at how sin entered the world and how that played out through the Old Testament. And then this relentless nature of God to keep pursuing us and making a way for us to come back to this sinless relationship that we were created to, to be in. And how the Old Testament points toward Jesus, that He is the promised Messiah, that He fulfills all of these prophecies. And then we went from that, that was called Assume I Know Nothing, and then we went into what we called Five Assumptions About God and Why They're Wrong, and we looked at the heart and the mind of Jesus, this, this God that we're to worship and follow and love and be loved by. What's He really like? How does He really function with us? And then we got into kind of the end of Jesus's time here on earth through the reversal series. And this weekend, not only are we wrapping up the reversal series, but kind of that whole long journey, that whole semester, and kind of bringing it to a close. And so after we talk this weekend, uh, if you have been on that journey, or if you want to go back to the, the app or the website and go on it, it'll give you the big picture. We're talking big picture with all this stuff, the big picture overview of the Bible and who God is and what He's like and who Jesus is and how we respond to Him. Okay, so I want to end this conversation by going back to something Jesus talked about at the Last Supper, and I want to talk about the afterlife and what the Christian view or belief system is on the afterlife, explain it a little bit to you, 
And then kind of ask the question, well, if that's the case, if that's the truth, how do we live then? What are we supposed to, to do with that, all right? So what's the deal with the afterlife? And what's the Bible say? What do we believe? How does it play out? And then how do we respond to it? Jesus talked about this at the Last Supper. I like to call it the First Communion. So when, when he's having this last time with his friends, his disciples, the 12, this is be, right before he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and prays, right before he's arrested, before he's beaten, before he's crucified, before the resurrection. So this is the last thing that happens before those few days kick into place. He's talking to his disciples, and he knows all that's going to play out. So you can imagine that the things kind of on his conversation list are things that are dear to his heart and that he believes are important for them to get their, their head around before he goes off in this last little leg of his journey. And one of the things he talks about in that conversation is the afterlife and where he's going and what he's doing. So if you've got a Bible, take it out and go to John chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible or some there under the chairs, you can use those. It's page 751. Or if you want to use the app, uh, that's probably the best tool. You can use that, take notes on it. And then we, I put all kinds of extra scripture in the app there if you want it. But it's John chapter 13, page 751. Look at verse 33, and Jesus is having this conversation uh, in the Last Supper. And he says, my children... I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I'm going, you cannot come. Uh, a new commandment I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. And by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples, if you love one another. Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. And Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Chapter 14, verse 1, Jesus then comforts him. And he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I was going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, and you also will be where I am. When Jesus is talking about his father's house and where his father is and where he is going and where the disciples will join him one day, that is what Christian belief would call, in a very broad term, we call that heaven, that Jesus is going to go to heaven the Father is in heaven. Those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ will go to heaven, and that's a huge part of the afterlife. So in Christian belief, this is how we view the Bible and what we hold to. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, we believe that the Bible teaches this. We believe in the afterlife, right? So we believe in the afterlife. Uh, Christians believe, I believe, that human beings are the only part of creation with a soul. So human beings were created in the image of God. By the way, we talked about that way back at the beginning of Assume I Know Nothing. We're created in the image of God. And part of what that means is that we are created with a soul or we are created to be eternal. 
So Christians don't believe that we die. We believe that our bodies die, of course, and that they're put into the ground, but the, the essence of who we are, our spirit or our soul, we don't believe that it dies. Uh, we believe that we are eternal in nature, but we believe that that eternity is composed of one of two things. So I believe everyone has a spiritual destiny. That's what the Bible tells us. But our spiritual destiny is this. We believe that every human being will either go to heaven or they will go to hell. And that those are the only two options that exist because of what the Bible teaches us. So Christians don't believe in reincarnation. Now, we don't believe in purgatory. We don't believe in ghosts. None of those things. We believe what the Apostle Paul said, that when I'm absent from the body, when my spirit or my soul leaves this body, if I'm a Christian, I am present with the Lord. And if I'm absent from the body, and if I'm not a Christian, I am removed from God forever. So we would look and say that our time here on earth, this 70, 80, 90, maybe if you're lucky, 100 years, right? This time here on earth we believe that this part of our life is a very, very small part of our life, that most of our life is eternal. But this part of our life is an important part of our life because it sets the trajectory for our eternity. I love what Timothy Keller says. And by the way, I would recommend you read any book he ever wrote. But Timothy Keller says it this way. He says, eternity is simply the trajectory of our life played out eternally. So if on this earth I'm giving my life to Christ, I'm following Christ, I'm loving Christ, I am defined and directed by Christ, I want to know Christ and make Him known, heaven is that eternally. It's me pursuing Christ and then getting to be with Him eternally. If I reject Christ, I reject His love, I reject His invitation, I reject His authority, I rebel against who He is as God, Hell is simply that played out eternally. I say, God, I don't want you to be a part of my life. Eternally, God removes himself from my life. So this part of our life is the foundation of our life in many ways. And the biggest thing that we do in this part of our life is we set that trajectory forever. I either return to Christ or I am forever caught in my sin. And this is the essence of the gospel. It's the essence of the Bible that by nature as a human being, I'm a sinner. It's, it's my natural inclination. And we all kind of know that about ourselves, right? No, nobody ever, when you were a little kid and you were playing with your sister, your mom never came into the room and said, stop sharing with your sister, you're being too nice. Knock it off or you'll get a spanking. That never happened. And she never said, quit saying such encouraging things to your brother. You're going to encourage him too much. That never happened. Because left to ourselves, we're going to be selfish. We're going to be harsh. We're going to be sinful. What is good and right and true has to be imported into our life. Your mom comes in and says, stop being mean. Share your toys. Stop saying those harsh things. If you can't say something nice, don't say something at all, right? That has to be imported into our life, and that's all because of our sin nature. So human beings by nature are sinful, and God imports truth into our lives. That's why we have the Bible. That's why we have the church. That's why we have the Holy Spirit, so that truth can come into our lives, so that we can go to who we were created to be with, Christ, and interact with Him eternally. God is perfect. We are imperfect. Perfection and perfection cannot coexist. 
Jesus steps in, pays the price for our sin. It's called the atoning sacrifice. Pays the price for our sin so that when I accept the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, I can then interact with God through Christ, right? So the Bible would teach that, that while on earth, that information gets to us. While on earth, we seek those things out. And then the scripture says, today is the day of salvation. I set the trajectory of my life here on earth. I find out things like, oh, that guy riding that donkey, that's the son of God. That's who that is. That, that guy that's dying on the cross that suffered for me, that is the atoning sacrifice. It's Jesus paying the penalty for my sin. That guy who rose again from the dead, that's not just a moral leader or a good role model. That is my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is God suspending the laws of nature to bend to his own will and by his own authority raising himself from the dead again. So when I confess with my mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead, I will be saved. When I receive the forgiveness of my sin, when I confess my sin, God is faithful and just to forgive me of my sin, cleanse me from all unrighteousness, I will be saved. And today is the day, while on this earth, this little portion of our life, that sets that eternal trajectory forever. So for those who know and love and follow Jesus, we believe that the afterlife is heaven, right? And we believe that that's the only option. That's what a Christian would believe. Uh, we, we believe that, that we go to heaven and we are present with the Lord. And there in heaven, all the effects and all the barriers of sin are removed in our life. And we are rewarded and interacted with there. So the Bible tells us a little bit about heaven. And it describes it a little bit to us and tells us what, what it's like. So as a Christian, we believe that heaven is a literal place. So we don't believe that it's just kind of a nebulous thing out there. It's not nirvana. It's not that kind of a thing. It, it's a real place. We believe what the Bible says, that the Father God is there right now. He's in his throne room in heaven. And that his son, Jesus Christ, is seated at his right hand right now. And that all the saints, all those that God has redeemed who have put their faith in God for all of time, that their souls are in heaven with God right now. Uh, they are there. They're not kind of floating little blobs, you know, little ghosts floating around. They're real people. They, they, can, they, they look like they look. They're recognizable as individuals in heaven. They're interacting with God. They're interacting with each other. And they are cheering for you and me as we, the church, do the work of God. So my mom and dad are in heaven right now. They died about a few years ago, right? And I believe that when they died, because they were followers of Jesus Christ, they had their sins forgiven, and they, they gave God the, the definition direction of their life, that when their bodies died, their souls went immediately to be with God, right? So my mom and dad are in heaven right now. They recognize each other. They recognize my brother who was already in heaven, right? And they are safe and secure there. Now, they are not my guardian angels. Uh, they do not interact with me, 
right? So my mom and dad don't speak to me. There's no, none of that going on. But they are there, and they can see the work of the church. And the Hebrews describes that they're cheering for the church. You can do it. It's worth it. Don't give up. This all is real. They're cheering for us as we do the work of the ministry. But they're very much alive. And maybe you've been to a Christian funeral, and you've heard somebody say that. I've said it many times at a funeral. I said it at my own parents' funeral when I did it. I, I, I looked and said, they're, they're, my dad, he's not in this box. His body's in this box, but he's not in this box. My dad's not dead. He's very much alive. He's with the Lord right now, and I will be reunited with him one day. When I die, or when the Lord comes back, my spirit will be with my father and mother and loved ones and all the saints who have gone before in heaven. Now, the Bible says that heaven is this incredible, wonderful place. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no human mind has conceived the things that God has prepared for those who love him. So heaven is beyond human comprehension. So sometimes we get this idea that what we'll do in heaven is our favorite things on earth for eternity, right? So my earth, if that was true, then I would like watch Ohio State work in my yard, shoot fuzzy things, and eat Twinkies. That's what I would do in heaven for the, you know, for the rest of my eternity. That's not what heaven is. It's not some version of your favorite thing to do on earth. Heaven is beyond that. It's beyond anything that you've seen, you've heard, or anything you can even comprehend. It, it is a place of wonder, of perfection, of what the Bible would call glory, and the Bible says that things on earth, the good things on earth, are just dim reflections. They're like blurry reflections of what heaven is really like. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 21 that in heaven, he will wipe away every tear from our eyes, that there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things will pass away. So Christians believe that before the curse before Adam and Eve fell into sin, when they were living in a perfect relationship with God and with each other, that there was, no, there was no death, there was no sin, there was no relational stress. None of that was there until sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3. Now, when we get to heaven, perfection and imperfection can't coexist, but once we're in heaven with the Lord because of Christ, all of that imperfection is erased out of our lives again. There's no more pain. There's no more sickness. That's all a result of sin. There's no more death. There's no more separation from death. There's no more relational pain. There's no relational sickness. It's all wiped away because sin and its effects will be completely removed from our life, and everything that we ever needed and wanted we will have because of our perfect interaction with God, right? So we would look at heaven that way, and we'd say, that, that's awesome, right? That, that, that's our future, and what we do in this life is we set that trajectory. So Jesus says there's certain things you can do now that's going to affect you for eternity. For instance, he was talking about money. He says what you ought to do is you ought to lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where Ross, uh, rust and moths cannot destroy and, and thieves can't steal it. So instead of just doing whatever you want to do with your money here on earth, if you want to make bank, make it in heaven because there's an eternal reward. He says, you know what? Your good deeds, 
you're going to be rewarded for your good deeds in heaven. So the good things, the selfless things that you do, they don't get you to heaven. Only the grace of God does that. But, but they, you're rewarded for that in heaven. The righteous life that you live, there's a reward for that in heaven. And there's an eternal dividend that God pays us, those who follow him, forever in heaven. And it's that reward and that blessing and that place that we will have forever, right? So the Bible talks to us about heaven. And I think there's a few reasons why the Bible talks to us about heaven, right? One, I think God kind of wants us to begin with the end in mind. And he's real clear saying, guys, don't, don't get too caught up in this little part of your life. Use it as a foundation. So I want you to know about heaven so that you in part know how to set the trajectory of your life and you do that now. Uh, another reason that God tells us about heaven is it gives us a great hope, right? The, the idea that there, I can break the tape and there's a finish line and there's a reward and it's something to look forward to. That when I die, I don't just cease to exist and turn into the, the, the dust or go into some atmosphere, float around, or the worst of all things, become like a back as a cat or something like that, some horrible wolverine. Right? So, like, so he wants us to have that hope. Heaven also is a, is a place, the reason God tells us about it is, is to give us a comfort. It's incredibly comforting to know that when my mom and dad and my brother died and friends, the, so many friends that I've buried over the years, it's so comforting to know that I'm not saying a permanent goodbye, that we will be reunited again. In fact, the Bible says that. The Bible says we don't grieve like those with no hope. We, we do grieve the, the temporary loss of a relationship. We grieve saying goodbye. It's like sending our kids to college or something like that. Like, like, we'll miss this change that has happened in our life. But we don't grieve like those with no hope. I am thoroughly confident that I will see my mom and dad and I'll see my brothers and my friends and my loved ones again. Just got to wait a little while, right? Because they're in heaven. And one way or another, I'm going to join them there. Another reason why God tells us about heaven is it gives us courage. It gives us courage to know that as a Christ follower, I'm not going to die. Like, what can you do to me? In fact, Jesus says, he goes, don't fear the one that can kill the body. Fear the one that can kill the soul. Like losing your life on earth, that's going to happen to everybody. But losing your soul, that, that would be a tragic thing. So it gives us courage. When you think about the martyrs of old, or even the martyrs today, you know, right now in the Middle East, in the areas that ISIS controls, that the UN of all people, the UN has said there's a Christian genocide happening in the areas where ISIS controls. There's all kinds of reports and documentation of, of the ISIS guys crucifying Christians, uh, beheading Christians' children in front of them, right, beheading priests and pastors. It's, it's horrific what's going on. Well, what happens with those saints when they're facing that persecution, when they're looking at the loss of their life? One of the ways that God comforts them and emboldens them is, is this truth that I'm not dying. I'm not dying. So go ahead and take my body. I don't care. I was created to live eternally anyways. All you're doing is speeding up the inevitable. And so there's a courage that comes from that, a courage to stand for the Lord, a courage to live for God, a courage to pass from this life into next. I remember being with my dad when he was dying. We'd talk a lot about heaven. 
Because my dad knew that he was going to die, and we had time to talk through things. And it was, it was fascinating to me. He had no fear of death, no fear of death at all. In fact, there was a part of him that was looking forward to it because he missed his son. He hadn't seen his son in 50 years. So he was excited to, to see my brother Doug, but no fear, no, no fighting for every breath of life that wasn't in him because he had a confidence, he had a courage, he had a comfort, he had a hope that is in heaven. And the Bible says, for those of us who know Christ as their Savior, who have received the forgiveness of our sins and put our, our life under the definition and the direction of Jesus Christ, those who are true followers of Christ, if you wonder who that is, listen to last week's conversation. We, we defined it, or the Bible did, okay? That heaven is the eternal destiny. It is the afterlife, and it is the promise and the commitment of God. We, there is a room there, so to say, right, that Jesus is creating, and we will join him there, right? Now, the afterlife is also true when we put our life on the other trajectory. And so, the Bible would also teach that those who reject Christ, His love, His authority, His teaching, also have an eternal destiny. Every human being is eternal, right? It's the trajectory of your eternity that we're talking about and that you define while in this phase of your life. And so, Christians also believe that there is a hell, and we believe that hell is a real and a literal place. We don't believe that we're in hell right now, and we don't believe that, that hell is the, the dark circumstances of our life. We believe, Christians believe, Grace Church believes that hell is a real place. It is an eternal place. It is a place that those who reject God go to and stay in for all of eternity, that once you're in hell, there's no escape from it. And the Bible teaches this as well. This is why we believe this so strongly. Jesus says in Revelation chapter 21, but the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. I die physically. Instead of being made alive, I, I'm, I'm condemned. I'm damned to this place called hell. Matthew chapter 25, then they will go away. Jesus, again, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The Apostle Paul says in 2 Thessalonians that they, those, the evildoers, those who reject God, will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might. Jesus again, Matthew 13, they will be thrown into the blazing furnace where there will be weeping and the gnashing of teeth. So we believe that there is a hell. And we believe that the Bible teaches us about hell. And I believe that the reason the Bible teaches us about hell is not so that Christians can gloat, right? Ha-ha, we're going to heaven, you're going to hell. That is self-righteous, arrogant, and you probably better double-check your heart if that thought ever crossed your mind. It's not so that you can look forward to your enemy's suffering. You know, one day, all those people that I disagree with are going to fry in hell. That's what God, no, 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 no. That, that has nothing to do with why God tells us about hell. The reason that God tells us about hell is because hell is a tragedy that is completely avoidable. Nobody needs to go to hell. 
It's a tragedy that's completely avoidable, but it is the natural trajectory of our life. We are by nature sinners, and if that trajectory is not interrupted, that is the logical conclusion of where we will wind up eternally. But it breaks the heart of God. It breaks His heart so much that He sent the prophets, that He gave us the Bible, that He created the church, that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have everlasting life, right? So the extent God goes to to help us escape, the Bible calls, uh, He provides us a way of escape from hell, is extraordinary because God wishes that none would perish but all would have everlasting life. So hell is not something we gloat on. Hell is not something that we should turn into a mythical idea, like when I die, I'm going to be with all my friends in hell and party forever, and you're going to, it's not the way that's going to work. Like hell jokes are, they're, they're kind of funny, but then they're really, really tragic because it is the eternal loss of a soul. It is the eternal damnation of someone's life. It is a place of eternal suffering and punishment, and there is zero reason for anybody to go there. So if you, if you are kind of new to this idea and thinking it through, th- this, is, this is where, you know, Christians are at with it. And, and we would look and say, the Bible teaches us that these are the two options, and the only way to get to option A, to go to heaven, is through Jesus Christ. And by the way, that's Jesus' words, not mine. He says in John 14, 6, Jesus says, I'm the way I'm the truth. I'm the life. Nobody goes to the Father. Nobody receives the forgiveness of their sin except through me. So this is why, if you ever wonder why Christians are so uh, passionate about this stuff, it's because of this. We, we, when we think of heaven and hell, we think of it as a life and death conversation. And we don't think of it as just a viewpoint or a worldview. When we think about heaven and hell, we would look and say, no, 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 your, your very soul is at, at stake. And so you, you must know about the love and the hope and the truth of Jesus so that this tragedy can be avoided, right? Because Christians, <coughs> we don't believe that all roads lead to heaven. Now, we don't believe that every faith has an element of truth and we all kind of serve one big God and it kind of works out in the end. But we don't believe that because Jesus didn't teach it. In fact, he taught the, the exact opposite from Genesis to Revelation all the way through. He teaches monotheism. There is a God and you must respond to that God on that God's kind of terms of response the forgiveness of sin. And if you do not have the forgiveness of sin, then your souls are lost. So Christians don't believe that we can just coexist. We do not believe that we need to be jerks to other people. We don't look condescendingly down on other religions. At least Grace Church doesn't do that, right? We don't want to be that way. We don't want to be self-righteous. But it's a deep, deep passion. We have discovered a truth And we have to proclaim this truth because this is the only way that you can have salvation. Your eternal destiny is at stake. So we would look and say, well, that's that truth has got to be the driving force behind what we do. So maybe you have a friend that's always telling you about Jesus or always hyped up on Jesus. That's why, because they love you. They're not trying to be jerks about it or obnoxious, right? That's just their personality. It's not what they're, right? They're looking at you and saying, I love you. I don't want you to go to hell. 
I want you to go to heaven and only Christ can take you there. We, we believe this is the very purpose of the church, that the driving force of the church is to help people know the gospel or the truth of, of Jesus Christ. So here at Grace, that, that's why we send missionaries all over the world. That's why we, we start other campuses and other churches. That's why we put all kinds of effort into loving people and serving people. We, we do all that to earn the right of relationship. We want that hungry kid, we want them to eat and we also want them to know the truth of Jesus Christ, right? That person over there has a medical need. We, we want them to feel better physically, but we also want them to know the truth of Jesus Christ. So as a group of Christ followers who believe that that is our eternal destiny, that that is the afterlife, Grace Church has an example over the years. We have spent tens of millions of dollars to help people know who Christ is, his love for them. That is the son of God. He loves you. He's the atoning sacrifice. He took your place for you. That was him that got up physically from the dead. He is God, the bodily resurrection. And he is the way, the truth, the life. You cannot go to heaven unless you know him, right? So in a very broad overview, that, that's the Christian belief system on the afterlife, and it, and it motivates us, and it drives us, and, and it helps us. And we would look and say, that's why God tells us about hell. It, it's not a taunt. It's a warning. It's a passionate plea. It, it's not a, ah, you're going to get yours one day. I'll see you in hell. No, no, no. It, it's, a, it's, a, it's a motivation that we need to rescue. We need to tell that there's a way of escape. There's no need to, to go there, right? And, and it's a demonstration of God's love. God doesn't send us to hell. We'd send ourselves to our own sin. Jesus is interrupting the natural trajectory of our life. He gave his life to save our life so that all of that can be avoided, right? So that, that's the idea. And, and this portion of our life, we take this and we say, well, this is just the beginning of our life. And this is the portion of our life where we define the trajectory of our life. But this isn't all of what we live for. It's just the beginning. I love the way the Apostle Paul said this in 2 Corinthians. Let me show you this really quick. Because we believe that this life here that we're, this life is wonderful and it's God-given and it's, it can be full of joy and purpose and meaning and all those sayings that, that we all want and long for. But we think of it, we believe that it's a temporary phase of who we are. And this is one of the reasons why we believe it. The Apostle Paul says this, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says, while we're in this tent, this is our tent. This is what the Bible's talking about, right? So this body of mine is just a temporary thing. We all know that. This isn't me. This is the vehicle I travel around in. It's not my fault. Mine's so hot and you struggle with yours, right? It's just the, you know, that was God's will, right? So that, but this is a temporary thing. We all, we all know that this thing isn't going to last forever. And we all know that this isn't me. If this gets sick, if this changes, if I lose some of my physical ability, I didn't die. My tent just changed. So Paul's saying this tent, this temporary dwelling that we'll use for a while and then we'll, we'll wear out. While we're in this tent, we groan in our burden because we don't wish to be unclothed, but clothed instead in our heavenly dwelling. Isn't that fascinating? That there's something else that we actually long for. So while we're in this tent, we groan <coughs> and we are burdened. When I'm in this tent, 
This tent groans and aches. I'm getting old. I got my birthday's coming up in a few days. I like cash, sushi, gift cards of any kind. But like when when I'm in this tent, like my knees are aching. You guys, are you guys that age yet where everything's a slow start? You stand up, kind of get your balance, and then you start moving, right? I'm at that phase of my life. My tent is achy, it's moaning, it will have sickness, and it's burdened. I have a relational pain in my life, don't you? Friends that I wish we're making different decisions, children that I worry about, a church that concerns me, pressure at the jobs, all those kind of things. I have burdens in my life, and they all affect the tent. And Paul says, when that's happening, I long for my heavenly dwelling. That When I idealize my life, I think of something different. I think of peace. I think of everything going perfectly. I think of a real and true love for each other. I think of everybody locking on to who God really is and what he really says. I think of something different than what this temporary dwelling of mine can produce. This heavenly dwelling is what I want. Then he goes on, he says this in verse 5. He says, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. That's fascinating. He says, this tent is mortal, that you and I have a, a, a mortality. It's mortal, it's temporary. It's, this thing is alive, but it's not permanent. It is mortal, and it's going to be swallowed up by life. What is temporary is eventually going to be overtaken by what's eternal, you might say. That there's a section of my life that I'm in, it's the very beginning, but it's actually going to be swallowed up by my real life. And then he says, now the the one who is fashioned us for this very purpose is God. God created us this way. We're made in the image of God. We're made eternally, who has given us the spirit as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. So God didn't create me just to live 60, 70, 80. Maybe you're lucky you get 100 years. I had a friend that lived to 101. He really nailed it, right? He won and I did his funeral. He says, you're not going to make it forever. Maybe you make it 150 years. Maybe they figure out the science and they defrost Walt Disney and he comes back for a while, right? And he, but we're not, we're not going to make it forever in this thing. No way, no how. But us, our soul, is eternal. And God created us that way. God created us to be on the earth and he created us to be with him And then for those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of our sin, place our life under the authority of God, the Bible says he's given us a spirit, the spirit as a deposit. So the Bible says when I accept Christ, several things happen. My sins are forgiven because Jesus, I take on Jesus' righteousness and holiness and forgiveness, right? I become a part of the church, the spiritual entity, the the ecclesia is the Greek word for it, if you want to impress somebody, the, the church, and The Holy Spirit of God lives in me. The Bible says that when I accept the Lord, my name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and the Spirit is given me a deposit, as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. I make a reservation, God makes a reservation for my room in the Father's house, and the Holy Spirit is my down payment on that, so to say. And Paul's looking and he's saying, guys, this tent's going to die. What is moral is going to be swallowed up by life, eternal life. God made you that way. But you don't have to freak out. 
You don't have to wonder if you're going to make it to heaven. You don't have to hope that you did enough good things. You don't have to be scared of the mysteries of the afterlife. Through Christ, you can have a reservation and a deposit and a guarantee of what's to come because your room is being built right now in the Father's house because of who Christ is, what He did, His death, His burial, His resurrection. And when I confess with my mouth, Jesus is the Lord, believe in my heart, God raised Him from the dead, life under His authority definition, right? I will be saved. Now, guys, all of this is meant in part to give us a perspective because we struggle with this. I do too. I struggle with thinking beyond my life. You know what life is like? It's like this. Think, think of life as this little red part here, right? That's my life. My 70, 80, 90, 101 years. You won, 101 years. And in this little section of life, what we're taught right now is that this is it. And somehow I have to get everything I'm ever going to get out of this little section of my life. It, it's the YOLO life, man. I got to sleep with whoever I can. I got to make as much money. I got to, you know, do it all. And let's just pretend that you, you win. You win. You get to live the greatest life that's ever been lived on planet Earth. You got the most money, the most fame, the most sex, the most, whatever you want, right? Eat Twinkies, you don't gain weight, whatever your dream is, right? You, you win. You win at this little thing, but you were created for eternity. You're created to be with God. You're created for your Father's house. You, you're, what is mortal is swallowed up by life. Now, is what is mortal important? Yeah, how come? Because it sets the trajectory of your life. I get to have a decision. Do I, do I want to pursue Christ or reject Christ? It's up to me. This little section of my life doesn't define my life. It, it directs my life. It, it moves my life in a certain way. But if I reject Christ... If I live for the moment, if I engage my mortality and that's all I ever engage, Jesus said this way, he says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but he loses his soul? So, so you win. You're the biggest deal. But you sacrifice what you were actually created for in the process, because everybody has a soul, everybody's got an eternal destiny, there's only two options. We lose perspective of, of this, right? I don't know what you think about how the world was created. If you're a, a creationist like I am, you might believe that the planet's about 10,000 years old. God made it with the oil and the diamonds and the carbon in it, right? So you might believe that. That's what I believe. Maybe you're an evolutionist and you believe in that theory, and so you believe that the world is millions and millions and millions of years old. So for this conversation, whatever you think is what you think. Let me ask you this. Let, let's just pretend that uh, the world is 10,000 years old. 8,000 years ago, right? Let's give the world a little bit of time from Adam and Eve. So 2,000 years after Adam and Eve, 8,000 years ago, who was the richest guy that was the most athletic? 
What's his name? Anybody? Let's just go back a thousand years ago. And a thousand years ago, who, who, who was the biggest deal in Copley, Ohio? You know that guy? Got the new ox. He's like, yeah, I got the new version. Mine's in leather. You know. Who's that guy? You know his name? You're one of seven billion people. Do, do you think a thousand years from now anybody's going to remember you? Of the billions and billions and billions of people who've ever existed on the planet, if it's a million years ago or 10,000 years ago, billions and billions, how many of those people do we actually know, actually remember, actually attach a name to? 50? So you think a thousand years from now anybody's going to know how far you made it in the job market? A thousand years from now, anybody's going to know that you played varsity? That, we laugh about this. 500 years ago, who, who was the biggest deal in Ohio 500 years ago? What, what tech did he have? Oh, you won't believe it. I discovered steam. Like we, we, we would look back at the cutting edge, the things that made a person self-righteous, arrogant, self-condescending. We would look back at those things and we would laugh at it now. I got a new butter churn. You're using the last year's model. Mine's high definition. We would mock it. But in their little slice of life, they thought, they thought they had discovered everything. The intellectually elite, 500 years ago, oh, yes. <laughs> the sun revolves around the earth. I've discovered it. We would mock it. You know what, you know what cutting-edge medicine is? We, should, we leech you. We suck the poison out of your blood with leeches. We would mock it. But they won, man. They won their little slice. Nobody's going to remember who you are. Nobody's going to know that we exist. If you play the odds historically, our country won't even be on the map of the planet in a thousand years. Now, you look at that, there's a part of that that's unbelievably disillusioning. So you, you get to cram your life into 70, 80, 90, 101 years, Get as far up the chain as you want, get the best score in the gym, get straight A's, hold the high school record, have the right zip code, get the hood ornament, and you die and you cease to exist. Two generations later, nobody cares about it. Or were you created for something else? Who was the person a thousand years ago that decided to lose their life in order to find it? Who was the person that decided to lay up for themselves treasures in heaven and instead of buying the new butter churn, gave their money to the church to send missionaries that went to Germany, that got on a boat, that floated over to the United States, that landed on the East Coast, 
that pushed their way inward so that you and I found the gospel of Jesus Christ today. Somebody did that. Do you know who? I don't. Who does? God did. Why? Because they were doing what they were created to do. Who was the person who believed that they could not die? Take my body. I don't care. In fact, if I die a martyr's death, the Bible says there's a greater eternal reward for me. It's one of the ways that's up your bonus points. And I'll die. I throw, I'll throw myself on the Bible. I've seen this actual Bible. There's blood on it. I'll throw myself on the Bible so that as you behead me and then burn down the monastery, you take my life and my body, but God's word's preserved. Who did that so that you and I can click it on our phone and read it at any second that we want and know who Christ is? Who are the people that gave of themselves to tell your parents or you or your grandparents about Christ? Who risked the relationship? Who, you know their name? You're not going to know their name. You know what they do for a living? Nobody cares what they do for a living. Well, I was middle management at the buggy factory. Great. There's a real future in that. But they didn't get obsessed with this because they knew without a shadow of a doubt they were created for this. See how that works? You know how God views our life? He views it like this. He says, you know what your life is? Your life is a vapor. It's here, gone. That's your life. That's it. Incredibly disillusioning if that's all it ever is. It's powerfully encouraging and motivating if that is swallowed up and I'm living forever for what I was actually created for. See how it works? Now, if we accept this premise, and if you're a Christian, you do, I do. If I accept this premise, how would I live then? See, if, if I believe that my life is doop, gone, so the Bible says it's vapor, doop, gone. If I accept that premise, that a thousand years from now, 500 years, 100 years from now, nobody will know my name. How would that cause me to live now? At this little slice of time, you know, 60, 70, 101 years, you got great genetics, good job, right? Is a foundation that causes a trajectory. How, how would I live? How would I respond to that? It seems like if I accept that premise, it would really affect my present situation. It would really affect the decisions I make and how I choose to live. So, remember, there's only two options for eternity. There's only two options in the afterlife. So, if I accept this premise and I have not yet repented of my sins and begun to follow Jesus, that premise should probably affect that decision pretty strongly right now. 
that I, that I would recognize that I am eternal. I think most people think that anyways, that I am eternal, but by faith I'm accepting what the Bible says as truth. And I'm, I'm going to, I need to make a move because it's what God says. So I confess my sins, ask for the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, place my life under his authority and direction and become a fully devoted follower of Jesus Christ. And I would say to you, if you've never done that, if you've never made that decision, made that move, I encourage you to do that right now. And your heart, pray from your heart to God's heart. Don't worry about your words. God doesn't care what you say. He knows what you mean. It's not a magic formula. Just from your heart to God's heart. God, no, the lights just came on. You're the son of God. You love me enough to die for me. And you are the risen Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I, I want to respond to you as my Lord, my God. So I worship, I submit, I follow, I love, and receive love from you. Right? From your heart to God's heart. That, that would seem to me, and it's up, you got to decide what you want to decide, but it would seem to me if, if I was accepting that, that premise that that would be a very appropriate response if I was in that camp. Now, if I'm already a follower of Jesus Christ, it seems like my response would be different. So if I'm already a follower of Jesus Christ, if I accept this premise, it seems like this premise would define how I live. So the Bible would say this, that as a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm to fix my eyes on things above. That as a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm not, I'm not obsessed with the mortal life. So appreciate the house, glad the car runs, it's fun to take vacation. It doesn't mean we all have to go join a monastery, but is that really, you're really going to care about what kind of purse you use? You're re that petty thing is really going to break down a, we're, we're going to live for soccer? We're, we're going to, we're going to, receive grace and then blatantly reject God's heart and mind as taught through the Scripture. See what I'm saying? It seems like if I accept that premise, what, I, what a logical conclusion to me would be that I would double down on eternal things because I, I'm, making, I'm making my bank eternally and this life here gone. I mean, it's going to... It seems like it would deeply affect the decisions I make, the investments I make, the money I spend, the relationships I have, how I move in boldness, like all that stuff. Because the, the discomforts of this life, the Bible would say they're light and momentary in comparison to the eternal glory, the things we're actually created to live with. See how that works? All right. That's what the Bible teaches in a, in a big, broad way. That's the basic belief of the afterlife. And God teaches us that and shows us that in His Word so that the present life can be ordered properly. Right? So if I accept this, it's going to deeply affect who I am, how I live, what I do. Okay. I encourage you to take a few minutes and just talk to God about this.
Give him some freedom in your life. If you've never asked for the forgiveness of sin, I encourage you to ask for that. If you're distracted and sucked up in the temporal things of life, ask for clarity. Double down on eternal investments. See how God leads you and what conclusions he brings you to, okay? Jesus, we love you. Thanks for loving us. Help us with this, God. It's hard for all of us. This is why you show us in your word. We'll never figure this stuff out on our own, so help us with it. God, let us open our hearts and our minds to who you are and what you want to do in us. God, for those of us who aren't your followers yet, with your kindness, draw us to yourself. Those of us who are your children, with your kindness, convict us, motivate us. Show us the things that easily entangle so we can cast them aside and follow you. Work in our hearts in that way in these moments, Jesus, in your name. Amen.